If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is a listener and community-powered show. If you're financially stressed, especially during this time, please do not worry about this at all. But if you're able to support the podcast starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. Due to the social distancing orders in place, we've also opened up our Green Dreamer network to any and all of our most passionate listeners. So I welcome you to join us at network.greendreamer.com. In honor of Earth Day, April 22nd, but with sensitivity to the pandemic we're in, I'll also be hosting a live digital gathering and discussion later this week to further what we talk about in this episode regarding the relationship between the coronavirus and conservation. And of course, what it all means for us going forward. All updates for that will be inside of the network. So again, it's network.greendreamer.com to join in. There are lots of viruses waiting in the diverse ecosystems. They've been living there, causing no problems to humans generally. But when we come in there causing disruption at great scale, we expose ourselves to those viruses. Those viruses sometimes seize the opportunity of infecting a new host, a human, and then if they're capable of passing from human to human, they have essentially won the sweepstakes. They have 7.7 billion hosts available to them on the planet. And that has never existed before. That was David Quammen, a journalist and the author of several books, including Ebola, The Tangled Tree, and Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic, published back in 2012. Now that seems pretty prophetic, right? Although he and his colleagues who were studying human pandemics knew that it was just a matter of time. So you can imagine David has been really busy responding to a bunch of interview requests, and I'm extremely honored and grateful to have had this opportunity to chat with him. We're going to discuss things like how zoonotic diseases like the coronavirus are related to environmental conservation, how we're making ourselves more and more vulnerable to having infectious diseases become full-blown pandemics, and more. This is an absolute must-listen and must-share episode so relevant to this time. So, Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, 
Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I got interested in zoonotic diseases about 25 years ago when I first started reading about Ebola. Ebola was a strange thing, a very dangerous virus known in Africa. And like the rest of the world, I found it very spooky at first. And then National Geographic asked me to do a series of stories about a fellow who was walking 2,000 miles across the last remaining great forests of Central Africa. I walked with him for weeks at a time, cutting our way through the jungle, wearing sandals and shorts so that we could walk through swamps and ford blackwater streams and sleeping on the jungle floor. And in the course of that, one stretch that we walked for about 10 days was through Ebola habitat. We knew it was Ebola habitat habitat because there had been a human outbreak in a village at the edge of this forest when where 30 or so people died. So we knew Ebola was there in the forest, and I had read enough about it to know that like any virus that occasionally infects humans, it has to have a non-human animal host. They call it a reservoir host, where it lives over the long term, quietly, without causing symptoms. But at that time, the reservoir host of Ebola was unknown. So we just knew that the virus was out there in the forest somewhere, maybe in a monkey, maybe in a bat, maybe in a rodent, maybe in a spider. We didn't know where. But doing that walk with him for 10 days focused me on this subject, and particularly on the subject of the ecology and evolutionary biology of Ebola virus, where it lives, how it emerges, how it evolves. Ecology and evolutionary biology were essentially my, my focus, my journalistic beat. And then I realized that dangerous viruses have ecology and evolutionary biology too. And at that point, I suppose I started the, the, the sequence of investigations and interests that led eventually to doing a book on that subject, which is Spillover. And essentially, it's a book on the ecology and evolutionary biology of scary viruses. Do we know how the virus was able to make that jump from, for example, chimpanzees to humans? Like, is it because they mutated so they're able to make that jump? Yes. Well, the fact that viruses can jump from a non-human animal into a human, it's a reminder to us, for one thing, that we are animals, and most of these viruses come from mammals. We are mammals, so we are similar enough to them that sometimes their viruses can become our viruses without having to change very much. We don't know exactly how much in some cases, but you mentioned chimpanzees. I described the story in my book of the ecological origins of the AIDS pandemic, and we now know that the pandemic strain of HIV came from a single chimpanzee and passed into a single human in the southeastern corner of Cameroon in Central Africa back around 1908, give or take a margin of error, much earlier, way earlier than people tend to think. But then it moved slowly, probably evolving to become better adapted to humans, not just infecting humans, but passing from human to human. But HIV doesn't pass nearly as quickly as a respiratory virus, so it moved slowly and eventually reached the entire world. With other viruses, including coronaviruses like this current one, you can have a high mutation rate. Coronaviruses and influenzas, those viruses, tend to evolve very quickly. Influenza viruses in particular evolve very quickly, change constantly, and that's why we need a new flu vaccine each year. 
Coronaviruses evolve not quite so quickly, but they still evolve steadily. And in some cases, they, they spill into humans and they turn out either to be already adapted to humans just by chance coming from another mammal, or they evolve quickly enough to adapt to humans and then become essentially human viruses. This virus, there is some evidence that it was ready to be a human virus even after it came out of its bat reservoir. There is some evidence of that. So you mentioned the term reservoir hosts, which you've described as any species in which a zoonotic bug lives permanently and inconspicuously. Does this mean that it doesn't really affect the reservoir host in their health, but they're essentially carriers, so they can spread that to other animals in which it does affect those animals and turn into diseases? That's correct, yes. The reservoir host, by definition, is, is a host over the long term. And we don't know this for sure, but the assumption is that a virus that is living quietly in a reservoir host without seeming to cause disease epidemics in the population of that host, that it's been in that host for a long time, for tens, hundreds of thousands of years, maybe millions of years, so that gradually the virus has adapted to a quieter sort of life history. It's content to live at relatively low concentrations of itself, like say low viremia, low prevalence of virus in the blood, and passing from one individual of that host species to another without ever creating rampant infections where an individual animal might spread the virus briefly and then die. The long-term strategy seems to be better if it is less disruptive, less virulent, less slow to kill. So the extreme of that is a reservoir host that carries the virus without showing symptoms. Now, is this a two-way street? Like, are we as human, human animals potentially reservoir species for zoonotic bugs that live in us inconspicuously, but that we can pass on to other animals and wildlife as disease? Yes, absolutely. And that's a, that's a good question, important thing to bring up. So it is a two-way street. Humans can be reservoir species passing pathogens such as viruses into non-human animals. That's one of the reasons why if you want to be an eco-tourist and go to eastern Africa and see the mountain gorillas in the places where there are small groups of mountain gorillas that are habituated – in Rwanda or Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo, you must be healthy. The tourism visitation to these groups of mountain gorillas, when you can actually climb up the mountain and you can spend an hour or so in their presence, like sitting within 10 feet of them, that is regulated and they don't let people go up there if they're coughing and sneezing because there is a, there's a serious chance that a person could pass a virus to the mountain gorillas, a virus that they're not accustomed to, might be a simple rhinovirus, a cold virus, but it could be devastating in the mountain gorilla population. Likewise with chimpanzees, there are cases in, in which a human infection, possibly polio, if I recall correctly, also possibly in tuberculosis, has been passed to chimpanzees in places where there is chimpanzee tourism. So yes, absolutely, it is a concern. It is a two-way street. So viruses have been around ever since the earliest of times, but what changes have our human civilization made or what have we done that's made us more vulnerable to having zoonotic viral infections become full-blown pandemics? Right. Viruses have been around for a long, long time and viral pandemics or epidemics have been around a long time too, as well as bacterial epidemics. For instance, the plagues, the bubonic plague outbreaks of the 14th century, terrible outbreaks that may have killed 
as much as a third of the population of Europe. Bubonic plague is caused by a bacterium, bacillus, not a, not a virus, but it's also a zoonotic infection. It still exists on the planet. It occurs sometimes, sometimes passed from, from prairie dogs or rodents in the, in the American Southwest into people, but it can be cured now with antibiotics. Viral diseases are more difficult. They have been also around for a long time, but it wasn't until we humans became so numerous, so abundant, 7.7 billion of us, very hungry for resources of all sorts, very smart, very capable of, of taking resources from the natural world and putting them to use, so that now we are causing ecological disruption on a scale that has never existed before. Also, we are more interconnected to one another than ever before. So as we push into the great wild ecosystems of the planet, and we cut down trees, and we establish timber camps and logging camps, and we, we catch some of the animals or we kill them for food to feed the timber workers or the miners, we expose ourselves to the viruses that those animals carry. All those diverse species of animals, they all carry viruses and in many cases unique viruses, just unique to that species. So there are lots of viruses waiting in the diverse ecosystems. They've been living there, causing no problems to humans generally, but when we come in there causing disruption at great scale, we expose ourselves to those viruses. Those viruses sometimes seize the opportunity of infecting a new host, a human. And then if they're capable of passing from human to human, they have essentially won the sweepstakes. They have 7.7 billion hosts available to them on the planet, and that has never existed before. So the older historical viral outbreak spillovers probably caused just clusters of people to get very sick and to die and didn't spread throughout societies simply because the societies weren't connected enough and the societies weren't causing as much disruption as we are now. Therefore, these things weren't happening as often to them. Right. So we often talk about how inside of factory farms, when a lot of the same species of animals or in monocultures, when a lot of the same crops are planted over acres, it's very right. easy for that entire population to spread diseases easily. So when one catches something, it can spread really easily. And therefore, farmers use a lot of agrochemicals or antibiotics in that. So have we sort of created that environment for ourselves? Because we've kind of caused biodiversity loss, and we live in very close quarters, especially in condensed cities. So would that be a contributing factor in terms of why things have been able to spread a lot more easily? It would be a contributing factor. It is a contributing factor, and it's good to it's good to remember that factory farming of domestic animals for meat, yes, is another form of dangerous behavior. It's not just a few people in China who say, "Oh, I want to eat pangolins," or "I want to want to eat bats," or "I want to eat palm civets." There's too much of a tendency to demonize those people as being responsible for this current situation. All of us are doing things that contribute to the possibility of this kind of an outbreak, a spillover and a pandemic by the things that we do. And eating factory farmed meat is is one of them, I'm afraid. I mean, it would be better, I suppose. I'm not a vegan. I'm not a vegetarian. Or, well, maybe I'm, I guess I'm a vegetarian about four days a week now, uh, eating less and less meat and trying not to buy meat that comes from factory farms. But yes, that that is a problem, not just because of heavy antibiotic use that tends to create antibiotic-resistant strains of bacteria, but also when it comes to viruses. Can I tell you a very quick story of that? that yeah, comes go for from it. Okay, so I talk about this in Spillover. There is a 
there's a dangerous virus known as Nipah virus that first emerged in Malaysia in 1998. People were getting sick. They were fevering. They were having convulsions. It was a new disease. Nobody knew just what it was. First, they thought it was Japanese encephalitis spread by mosquitoes, a virus spread by mosquitoes. But then they isolated a virus and they saw, okay, this is not Japanese encephalitis virus. This is something new. We haven't seen this before. Where does it come from? Well, it uh, looks a little bit like that virus that was found in Australia just about four years earlier, which was named Hendra virus. And we know that that comes from big fruit bats. So let's look in big fruit bats and see if we can find this new virus and then try and figure out how it's getting into people. There were some investigators that went there. They went to northern Malaysia in an area where there was then factory farming of pigs. There were huge piggeries, huge pig farms where thousands of pigs would be gathered together in a corral being fed for market. In that area of northern Malaysia, most of the original native forest had been cut down. There were giant fruit bats who lived in that native forest. Their, their customary food was wild fruit from the forest. But as the forest was cut down, they started moving and looking for other sources of food. And on these pig farms had been planted fruit trees, mango trees, star fruit trees, other fruit trees, in some cases planted shading the pig corrals, providing shade for the pigs, and also providing another stream of income for the pig farms, the people could harvest the mangoes, etc. But the Fruit bats started discovering these fruit trees hanging over the piggeries. The bats started coming, feeding on the mangoes and the other fruit. They suck out the, the juice and they drop the pulp, dropping the pulp into the, into the pig corrals, dropping also their feces and their urine and their saliva into the pig corrals. The pigs, of course, are eating everything. So they take in this fruit pulp and, this, and the um, feces and the urine, saliva, and with it they take in this new virus from the bats who have been carrying it for thousands of years. The pigs start to get sick. The disease spreads throughout a thousand pigs in one corral. It spreads somehow to the next corral. It spreads to another pig farm just over the hill. It spreads quickly throughout that part of northern Malaysia. So, And they, they called it, I think, the one-mile coughing disease because you could hear pigs coughing from a mile away and knowing that the disease was coming to your pig farm. It didn't kill most of the pigs. It just made them sick. But then people started getting sick. Which people? Well, not surprising, the pig farmers, the hog butchers, the pork sellers in the markets. Those were the people who were getting sick with this new disease because it had been amplified in the pig corrals. The pigs had been an intermediate host. If the pig farms had not been there and the bats had still been feeding in their native forest, we could have gone for another who knows how long without this disease, this virus having gotten into humans. So certainly it sounds like disruption plays a big role in inviting the chances of these infectious diseases jumping from different species to other species. So within any given environment, the virus and all the life there is typically evolving together slowly. But when we sort of disrupt that, they may have to find other animals as hosts. I'm wondering about land-based indigenous peoples who still live as a part of wild ecosystems, like those living in and off of dense, deep tropical rainforests. Do they have immunities that outsiders may not have because they've evolved slowly and continuously with all the wildlife and the microbiology there, maybe over thousands of years and more? Well, that's a good question. And I think the answer is that we don't know enough about that. But that's something that should be investigated. 
There probably hasn't been enough money for research. And also, it's tricky if you go into people who are living a very balanced life in the forest, living off the forest, closely connected with the forest, then you come in as an anthropologist or a, a biomedical researcher or whatever, immediately you're causing changes. Some changes will not be good. So you might come in and say, well, I'm a researcher and I just want to study. I want to take your blood and investigate it and see if you have immunity. Oh, you want to take our blood? Really? Well, what? Why should we <laughs> let you take our blood? Look at here. We've got some sick children. Don't you have any medicine in your fancy bag for our sick children? And maybe you have some medicine that's helpful. Maybe you can you can cure some worm diseases in these people. Maybe you can help them with infections of the eye and help these people. And then you've started a series of changes. The next step is for there to be some sort of a medical clinic in there. And that's very helpful because these people do get sick. Some of them suffer. Um, there aren't really many uncontacted people, if any, but uh, there are people who live lives in, in Africa, in Central Africa, close to the forest. And some of them still suffer severely from malaria. They're not immune to malaria. Malaria kills about a half million people a year and most of those are children in sub-Saharan Africa. So you go into a place like that and say, I want to take your blood and, and look, see if you have any immunity to malaria. They're going to say, well, well, give us some damn medicine to protect us against malaria, Mr. Smart Guy, outsider scientist. <laughs> so it's hard to gather that kind of data. It's, it's important to wonder about that. It's possible that in some cases, these in indigenous peoples have developed immunity against certain diseases. Meanwhile, they remain very susceptible to other diseases that you might bring in from the outside. So even doing research on that, it's almost like Heisenberg's law. You know, you can't make an observation of a very delicate situation without having some effect on that situation. Right. Because I guess even if researchers wanted to study the few uncontacted populations left, they might put those people at risk by getting in contact with them. Exactly. You might discover something about their immunity to a disease, but then you might bring in another disease to which they have no immunity. Right. So I've heard that climate change can worsen various types of infectious diseases, especially mosquito-borne illnesses, because they like warmer temperatures. So as places become warmer, they may be able to migrate to new areas or spread more widely and infect more people. How might climate change affect virus mutations, spreads, and more zoonotic diseases? As far as we know so far, the main detectable effect is what you described, climate change causes temperature ranges to, to move away from the equator and, and northward. And as that happens, there are some mosquito species that are, are expanding their ranges, and some of them are carrying really terrible diseases. They're carrying malaria farther north. They're carrying dengue, carrying West Nile virus, chikungunya, and other things into ranges where the people have had no exposure to those. So that's the most obvious immediate concern. In terms of other viruses that come out of other kinds of animals, it's harder to see. There's some people who want to say, oh, see this pandemic, COVID-19, it's caused by climate change. Well, no, I don't think you can say that at all. It's not caused by climate change. However, it's caused by the same factors that cause climate change. It's caused ultimately by the same things that humans are doing, multiplying. So there's 7.7 .7 billion of us extracting resources, extracting energy, extracting food, extracting timber, disrupting the rich ecosystems. 
So that's, I think, the main thing that can be said about those two together. There's another thing that people ask me about sometimes, and that is, what if there are viruses that are frozen in the north, in the bodies of ancient humans or in the bodies of woolly mammoths or something else, and now climate change is moving north and the permafrost is starting to thaw out? Are we going to release those viruses causing new pandemics? And my reaction is that that's a, a good outline for a science fiction movie out of Hollywood. <laughs> it's trivial compared to the things that we should worry about, which is all the other thousands of viruses that are already there in our, our diverse warm ecosystems, which we're exposing ourselves to much more quickly than we are anything that might have thawed out of a woolly mammoth in the north. I'm being very careful asking this question, but do you think this might be one of nature's ways of checks and balances? Like, Beneficial or harmful is a matter of perspective and the roles that we play within that ecosystem. So if our consciousness were inside of a, of a pathogen, then our ideas of good or bad would also shift. If we played the predator versus prey roles, our ideas of good or bad in the world would also shift. But if we were to step outside of our existence as humans and look at our ecosystems objectively, do viruses play a necessary role within an ecosystem to support its overall balance? Or might the Earth be better off without all viruses? Very interesting question, complicated, and you asked it in a very careful, sophisticated way, and I appreciate that. Some people ask it in a less sophisticated way. They say, isn't this nature's revenge? And they give nature a capital N. Mm. And I don't think about it that way, and clearly you don't think about it that way either. The way you think about it is the way I think about it. It's possible that viruses do play a role in correcting imbalances. For instance, there's a group of insects that become pestiferous problems for forest trees in places, for instance, where I live, like Montana. Every dozen years or so, you might see a plague of tent caterpillars, these little fuzzy caterpillars that build these silk tents inside which hundreds of, of them might grow from being tiny baby caterpillars into caterpillars that are ready to turn into moths, which is what they do. So suddenly there's an infestation and all your trees are filled with these webby nets like spider webs wrapped around clusters of leaves, these tents made of silk. And there are caterpillars all over chewing, 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 chewing the leaves off of all your trees. This happened in my town back in about 1992. I still remember it very vividly. I write about it at the end of Spillover because it has a certain value as a parable to what is happening with humans. Ecologists call this an outbreak population, not in the sense of an outbreak of a disease, but an, an outbreak of an incredible abundance in a particular species that has the capability of, of increasing its population level because of good conditions over the space of just a year or two, increasing population abundance by a factor of a thousand or more than that. So suddenly you've got tent caterpillars everywhere. The leaves are falling off your trees, are being eaten away. And people say, well, we should spray them. We should get rid of them. We got, we got to spray some chemicals on them. And the, the forest ecologists say, no, relax. Just be a little bit patient because this population outbreak is going to crash. These things are going to disappear naturally. And sure enough, after a year of this, usually before the trees die, they grow more leaves. Or at most two seasons of this, the tent caterpillar population crashes. It goes from incredible abundance down to almost nothing. So you can't find one. They're still there, very few of them, but you can hardly find one. And what is it that causes that population crash? 
you can probably guess. Virus. Virus. It's a particular kind of virus. The nucleopolyhedrosis viruses, NPVs, that are an endemic presence in these tent caterpillar populations, but they don't become of epidemic proportions until the abundance of the tent caterpillars themselves explodes into this huge outbreak. And then with a slight lag after the explosion in numbers of the tent caterpillars, there's an explosion of abundance in the virus infecting the tent caterpillars, and they all infect one another, and they die, almost all, 99.99% of them die, and the population outbreak disappears. That's a natural cycle. Entomologists can predict that that's going to happen, and it does happen. So is that going to happen to us? We Some ecologists even say that humans are an outbreak population, 7.7 billion of us on the planet. We don't reproduce nearly as quickly as tent caterpillars, but we reproduce pretty quickly now that there are so many of us. A hundred years ago, the time of the 1918 influenza pandemic, there were about 2 billion humans, now about 8 billion. So we have quadrupled since the last human pandemic. And now we have a new human pandemic. I am very hopeful that this is not going to cause our population to crash. It's going to it's going to infect a lot of people and it's going to kill a lot of people. But I think that we have the capacity to deal with it so that we don't reach total disaster and find ourselves knocked down to just a small fraction of the former human population. Why is that? It's because we're smarter than 10 caterpillars. We have science. 10 caterpillars don't have science. We have the, the ability to tell people you need to do social distancing. The 10 caterpillars don't have social distancing. We have the potential to develop a vaccine. 10 caterpillars don't do that. So we have a chance to avoid what is the inevitable fate for other outbreak populations, which is population crash often caused by a viral pandemic. We can get through this, but we have to be humble and remember that we're bringing this problem on ourselves to a great degree because we are relatively as abundant as tent caterpillars in a forest. A key point that we discussed earlier is that when we encroach into deeper and deeper wild spaces, we're going to invite the possibility of more pandemics because we're going to expose ourselves to viruses that we haven't had before or at least haven't had in a really, really long time. I understand this, but I'm wondering, doesn't this, in a sense, further encourage the view that we are separate to nature? Because with people wanting to avoid these novel diseases, they may even more distance themselves from wild nature, even though the realization that we are a part of nature is so necessary for sustainability and our well-being. So I guess my question is, how can we learn to live as a part of nature, respecting our native wild biodiverse ecosystems without having the scare of potential new zoonotic diseases deter us from even wanting to reorient ourselves as one part of the natural world? Interesting question. Yeah. We don't want to separate people from nature. We just want to urge people to interact with nature and remember that we're part of nature in a way that's proportioned, that's not disruptive. We want people to walk in the forest. Yes, we do. We want people to see the diversity of life there, to see monkeys, to see snakes, to see birds of all kinds, to see bats and owls if they're very lucky. 
We want that to happen because that's the way people can be reaffirmed in their understanding that nature is very beautiful, that the diversity of nature is much more interesting, much more much more nurturing to the human spirit than a planet that would be lonely, boring, and ugly without biological diversity. So we ourselves have to keep in mind and we have to help others understand that, yes, we are part of nature, but the best way we can live with nature is in ways that are relatively undisruptive. Now, all of us want to eat. All of us want to wear clothes. Most of us want to have a cell phone. Those things require resources that come from nature. None of us should feel smug, even if we're pure vegans, about walking around on planet Earth with no impact. We all have impact. The choices that we make, what we eat, what we wear, what resources we consume in other ways, how much energy we burn, how much we travel, how many children we have, very important decisions. And the more we can lessen our impact while still enjoying wild nature, staying connected to wild nature, occasionally getting the opportunity to go into wild nature, to walk in the forest, to canoe down a river, to hike up a mountain. The more we can do that less disruptively with lower and lower consumption and lower and lower population of humans on the planet over the long run, the better off we will be and the better off planet Earth will be. So maybe in spite of people trying to look at humans as being superior or separate to nature, this maybe is just a very sobering and humbling reminder that we're not above the laws of nature that govern all other life, and we're not immune to the evolutionary idea of the survival of the fittest, even though we try hard to defy those laws. That's right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And zoonotic diseases are a reminder of that. Animal disease, human disease, same disease. Animal virus, human virus, same virus. That wouldn't be happening if we had come from another planet, you know, the planet of the gods as opposed to planet Earth. We use the same genetic code in our cells that viruses use. We have a genome that's very, very, very similar to the genome of a chimpanzee. We are mammals the way bats are mammals. We should remember all that, our connectedness. And these viruses, especially when they explode into horrible pandemics like this one, are reminders of that connectedness. So what does this realization mean for us? So this pandemic is definitely not the first and it won't be the last. For people who are taking this very seriously as it should be, a lot of people are scared and fearful with all the uncertainty going on, especially Mm -hmm. because a lot of our countries and healthcare systems and leaders seem unprepared, even though you and your colleagues aren't surprised at all that this is happening. You guys saw it coming. Why didn't our leaders and what should we learn from this going forward? Why didn't our leaders see this coming? That's a $64 question. <laughs> I, think, I think that they did see this coming. I think that they did hear the scientists' voices warning about this, as amplified by me and a number of other writers and, and media people. The warnings were there. The warnings were pretty clear. But preparedness is expensive. If a leader of a country or a leader of a public health system says, okay, we are going to spend money, we're going to spend $20 billion on preparedness for the next pandemic, 
we're going to spend that money on scientific research to identify which viruses might be dangerous and technology to develop test kits that can be that can be modified quickly for any new virus and be portable and be taken to airport screening points and be able to deliver in the time that it takes a person to pass through airport screening be able to deliver results on whether that person is positive or negative for a new virus. We need that. We need excess public health capacity, not just enough hospital beds and ICU units and masks and gowns and ventilators for normal life, but much more than that to prepare us for the possible pandemic. If you ask a politician to do that and you say, here's the price tag, I don't know, $20 billion, that's just a, you know, maybe that's way too small say $20 billion, still, that's going to sound like a lot of money. And the politician says, wait a minute, you're saying you want me to spend $20 billion on something that might happen during my presidential term or might not happen during my presidential term. What if I spend that money, X billions of dollars, and nothing happens? Then people are going to be screaming at me that I wasted that money. Mm. And it's something that might happen or might not happen. Now, X billion do- billions of dollars, 20 billions or whatever, is small change compared to what it's costing us now. It's ridiculously small compared to the costs of this when it happens. But it seems like too much money for a politician to take a risk on spending it when there's a chance that it might not happen during his or her period of responsibility. And I think that's one of the problems. Let's hope that this pandemic is over as soon as possible. Do you think we have a greater likelihood of getting investments in preparedness going through right after this is over? So at least it's still top of mind for a lot of people. And we understand why this is so important. And they understand why it's so important. Yes, I am optimistic about that. I am optimistic that this thing is going to be so terrible, it already is, that it can't be ignored and people will have to be proactive and enact serious change afterwards. Even our egregious president, Donald Trump, I hope we'll see how costly this has been and we'll, how we have been hit by this. And even he, I hope, will say afterwards, okay, clearly we got to spend a bunch of money to be ready for the next time. We got to take this seriously because, boy, this turned out to be really bad. And of course, I knew it was going to be really bad the whole time, which of course is not true. Anyway, I think <laughs> our leaders will be unable to ignore this event, the COVID-19 event. I'm optimistic. I'm not optimistic that we're going to get through this without a lot of misery and death, but I'm optimistic that once we are through this, it's going to be impossible to ignore this, and we're going to have to enact real structural changes to be ready for the next one. Right. So if there's really a bright side to this, it's that maybe It'll serve as a wake-up call for us to do things differently going forward. And then finally, before we go into our concluding five closing questions, what pieces of guidance can you offer our listener in terms of what they can do in the short term to stay safe and be responsible citizens, as well as how they can play a part, maybe a small part, long-term in helping us to lower our chances of pandemics in the future? couple things, and I've already said some of this, um, to people, to every citizen, you and I are citizens. Social distancing, pay attention to it. It's real. It makes a difference. You're not an exception simply because you're a healthy 23-year-old. You can be endangering other people. You can get this thing and be 
passing it on without even feeling any symptoms. So no exceptions. Take it seriously. It's everybody's responsibility. Social distancing. Don't bother to hoard, hoard toilet paper. You've got better things to do. Don't hoard things at all because there are other people who also need a flow of goods. So, you know, if you've got some good stocks of food in your house, great. If you can get to a grocery store occasionally or have it delivered, great. Lay in some supplies, but but obsessive hoarding is not going to do any good. Masks. We, we still don't know what the latest directive is on masks in some states. And, and I know in Los Angeles, I guess the mayor has been saying he wants people to wear masks when they go into a public place like a grocery store. I'll leave that to the public health officials and talk about that. But in the longer term, in the longer term, what we need to do as citizens is – to be better educated about this kind of a problem and pay closer attention to when our politicians are lying to us for their own benefit. We need to be critical thinkers and we need to vote on this kind of a thing. If a politician is lying to you, then get rid of him. Bring in somebody who will tell the truth and will take this seriously. So we all need to get out of our emotional red and blue silos a bit and be more critical in terms of our thinking about the leaders that we have. Hey, walk with me. We're under the same sun with oceans all around. Yet it's not, it's not how we should be. Many of us fight for basic things in life. So let's bring energy and the IOT and water. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? I'm rereading The Plague by Albert Camus. And it tells us that even in a time of horrible pandemic, you see the best in some people and you see the worst in some people. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? I tell myself, worry is waste. Preparedness is useful. Mm. Stay busy. And I am very busy right now. And keep smiling. Wave to your neighbor. Give him a big smile from across the street. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? For my health, I'm doing exercises every morning for my various back and nerve issues. And I have a trainer who I ordinarily would go and see in the gym, but she is training me by Skype now. I wanted to keep paying her. I am still paying her. She comes into my little office by Skype and coaches me through some exercises. Love that. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? Well, I'm doing a ton of interviews like this to try and help people understand COVID-19, and I am also starting to do new research to write some things about the causes and the, the unfolding of this. I'm going to try and say something that other people aren't saying because there's really no air in the room for much of anything else right now. Mm. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? We humans are smarter than tent caterpillars, and I hope that that will not only allow us to survive this, but to be better members of the biological community on Earth afterwards. 
Well, to our listener, if you want to learn more and stay updated on David's work and numerous past books, including Spillover, you can head to www.davidquammen.com. That's D-A-V-I-D-Q-U-A-M-M-E-N.com. And you can also follow him on Twitter at David Quammen. David, thank you so much for joining us today. I know it's a really busy time for you, so we really appreciate your time with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Stay safe. Stay well, stay connected emotionally, even while distancing socially, even through the the darkness, keep smiling. 